I'm reading from Luke 20 chapter, verses 1 through 18. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also ask you a question. Now tell me, what was the baptism of John, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered him that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it, lent it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. When the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those, those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Our Father, we ask that through the power of your Spirit, you would speak. I pray that um, you would stir up our lazy hearts and our lazy minds that are so apathetic when it comes to things about you. Seize us. Grip our attention. God, I know that there's people here who are hurting and distracted. Allow them to focus in on you and your word. I pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that during this time, Lord, your word would penetrate deeply in their hearts. Lord, I pray now for me that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Um, It's been a, a few weeks since we've been in Luke. Um, the last time I preached in Luke was on Palm Sunday. Um, and we looked at how Jesus, he came into Jerusalem, specifically he came to his temple. And he began, you know, throwing over the tables of money. He began driving out all of these sacrifices with a whip. And we looked at how he was not doing this to reform the temple. That's not what he was doing. And you read a lot of commentaries and, and preachers talk about this all the time that, um, Jesus was trying to get rid of everything that was abusing the poor, or he was trying to open up the court of the Gentiles so the Gentiles could come in and, 
And those were certainly some of the reasons that Jesus was doing these things, but it wasn't the primary reason. He wasn't trying to reform the temple. He was replacing the temple. He was shutting the temple down at this point. Because Jesus now, he has come as the final priest. He's the final sacrifice. And now if you want to come and meet with God, you don't go to a temple. You come to him in which the fullness of deity dwells. And during this week, he stayed at the temple. He stayed there and he would come every day and he would teach. Um, Verse 1 says that he was preaching the gospel. And I love this this term in Greek. It, It literally is he was gospeling. He was gospeling every day. And you've got to see the rest of this chapter in context of him gospeling. Because he's not just attacking the religious leaders here. That's not what he's doing, is just attacking them. He's actually sharing the gospel with them. Let's look at this first confrontation that we see here. The religious leaders, they ask Jesus, where do you get the authority to do this? I mean, you can't just come into our house and get a whip and start you know, driving everybody out. Where, where do you get this authority from? And we know, because we've been reading through Luke, where he gets his authority. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Uh, The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. They hear a voice from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We know where Jesus gets this authority. They don't. And so Jesus gets them to think back to his baptism. And he asks them if, They thought John's baptism was from heaven or from uh, man. It's a a really simple question. Multiple choice. You got two options. Actually, the worst exam I ever had in college was a true-false exam. Um, But two options here. That's it. Was it from heaven or was it from man? What you see at this point is Jesus is once again forcing the issue He's going to force these religious leaders to make a decision about him. He's saying, you cannot ignore me. You can't be neutral. You've got to either crown me or you've got to crucify me. But you have to do something. And I'll notice that as the religious leaders are deliberating, it doesn't even cross their mind to actually try to answer the question honestly. It never even occurs to them to try to give a a legitimate, honest answer to this question. You know, they obviously do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or you could say at least they don't want him to be the Messiah, because if he is the Messiah, they lose everything. They lose their jobs. They, They lose all of this. But they don't have the guts to say, Jesus, you're not the Messiah. They don't have the guts to say, John's baptism, it was from man. They don't have the conviction to do that. Their answer is not going to be an answer of conviction. It's going to be about self-preservation. That's what they're about. They're trying to to just make sure that they still have a living, preserve their lives. If they actually had any true conviction, they would have told them at, at John's baptism... When John baptized Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that John was wrong. We held that. That's, we are convicted by that. He was wrong. But they don't have those convictions. And so Jesus, he exposes them for the frauds that they are. Um, it, Jesus says the same thing with us all the time. 
You know, I, I have found that most people in this world, they have neither accepted Jesus or rejected Jesus. They've just decided not to think about Jesus. Um, they don't want to make up their mind. You know, to most people, uh, Jesus is some historical figure that they kind of know a little bit of information about, but they don't ever feel like they really need to make up their mind about him. You know, one of my neighbors is, is this way. I, I asked him one time, what did he think about Jesus? And that's exactly how I phrased it. So what do you think about Jesus? And I just got this absolute deer in the headlight looks like, I haven't really thought about him. I'm thinking, you, you, you spend hours and hours all the time, every week, thinking about the little, the little minutia in your, in your lawn. How, how can you not think about Jesus? Even secular historians say that he's the most important person to ever have lived. Certainly have some thoughts about him. But I know a lot of people who are the same way. In college, I knew people who would watch Sports Center not once, but twice, but three times a day. And they knew every single sports statistic there was. And you would ask them, what do you think about Jesus? And they're like, I haven't thought about it. Uh, when I was in college ministry, um, I had a, a girl who knew everything there was to know about Dawson's Creek. And uh, it, actually, we would have all these conversations. Never watched the show, but she would always want to talk about Dawson's Creek. She would tell me about why, why Dawson and Joey were, they were perfect for one another. And she, she had her guess at who was the father of Jen's baby, and she really wanted to talk to me about that. And, and she obviously put all of this thought into this, and I'd ask her, who do you think Jesus is? And she says, well, I haven't thought about it. Baffles me. Absolutely baffles me. Seriously, you put all of your time and energy thinking of that. And you have a person who claims to be the son of God who changed history, and you want to know, you know, what happened to Bessie's boyfriend? Yeah, but that, that's what her mind was consumed with. Deep down, when I think back at my last conversation with my neighbor, I think he, he, he knew what would happen if he did make a decision. If he actually took time to think about it. If he said, no, I don't think Jesus is the Son of God... Well, they've been uncomfortable living here in the Bible Belt because everybody at least says that. Now, everybody believes it, but they at least say that. And if he said, well, you know, actually thinking about it, I do believe Jesus is the Son of God, then his whole life has to change. Everything, the way he handles money, the way he loves people, forgiveness in his life, all of those things would have to change. So the safest thing for him to preserve the way his life has always been going is to simply say, well, I haven't thought about it. I'm not going to think about it. Jesus is not going to allow you to remain in that position. If this is you, I challenge you to read the Bible. And you'll realize Jesus will not allow you to just be neutral. And for those of you who have family members who um, just refuse to think about Jesus. Encourage them. Not, don't argue with them. Encourage them to actually read the Bible and encounter Jesus. They'll realize they can't be neutral. Well, the religious leaders here, they say, they tell Jesus, well, we don't, we don't know where John's baptism was from. And so Jesus doesn't give him an answer, them an answer. He, he, do, he doesn't do this because they're not ready for the truth. They wouldn't get it if he told them. 
And then he tells them a parable about a landlord and some wicked tenants that is going to unpack this, this gospeling. And in this parable, we have a landowner. He's, you can see him as the investor. Um, and you have some tenants. Now, the landowner here in Matthew's gospel, he does a lot of things. He builds a tower. He builds walls for protection. Um, in Luke's account, he provides the land and the vineyard here. Um, and he rents this out to these tenants or to these farmers. And so they are to take care of the vineyard and they are to pay rent by just taking some of the, the produce, some of the fruit, and giving it back to the landowner. That's how they pay rent. And so the landowner, he sends servants to collect rent. This is where the story takes a little bit of a turn. This was an everyday common affair here. But now these, these tenants, when they see the servants coming, they actually beat up the servants. They refuse to pay rent. In Matthew's account, it actually escalates until finally they kill one, they stone another. But they do not treat these servants well. To really understand what's, what's going on here, you need to go back to Deuteronomy 6 and hear Moses' words to Israel. And this is right before they're going to enter the promised land. He says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And and so all of the Israelites were given land they didn't work for. They were given cities they did not build. They were given homes they didn't build, cisterns they didn't make, farms they didn't have to plant or do the digging for. They were given... Everything, it was given to them. Just like in the parable. Everything was given to them. The farmer gave them everything that they needed. But the the, the problem was, they didn't want to be tenants. They wanted to be the landowner. Even though they had everything they needed, they didn't want anybody telling them how to live. And in this parable here, Jesus is revealing the fundamental problem of the human heart. And that's that we all do not want to be tenants. We all want to be landowners. Deep down, we know that God has given us our life and that we're in debt to Him. Deep down, we know that. But we don't want to recognize Him as the creator and giver of all good things. We want to be the landowner because then we get to do whatever we want. We get to use the land however we want. We get to use the produce however we want. We get to use the profits however we want. Each of us gets to be our own Lord. And now just look at this text from a creation viewpoint. God is our creator. He's given us everything we have in this life. Even the very breath that we have, life itself is a gift from God. Everything we have is due to His grace. And deep down we know this, but we deceive ourselves and we think that uh, 
where we are in life, how far we've come in life, is actually because of our hard work and not because of God's grace. And some of you, you think, you know, the great job that I have, I have because I worked my tail off in college, got great grades, was better than everybody else. That's how I got the job I have. And you you consider yourself to be a a self-made man or woman. And Jesus is challenging that assumption. He's saying, actually, you're wrong. You're wrong. Nobody is a self-made man or woman. Everything we have is due to God's grace. What if you had been born into a poor family, living in the countryside, 5th century, Western Europe? You think you would have made something out of yourself? You know, Attila the Hun, he's, he's roaming the hillside. You think you would have become somebody? Or, or what if you were born even today, but you were, you were born to uh, a family that had nine other kids in Darfur? Would, would you have really got the job that you have now? Would you really have everything that you have now? The reality is, Most of what we have, most of what we've achieved in life is due to things that you had absolutely zero control over. Grace. God's grace. These tenants here were given everything in which to have a good life. But they hated the one who gave them this life. They hated the creator of their life. They hated him trying to exercise creator rights over them. They hated grace. And they hated anyone who came to remind them of grace. They hated the servants who came and reminded them that everything they had was because of the landowner. They hated it. They wanted to be landowners. It's the fundamental problem of the human heart. And we do the same thing. And we know we're tenants, but we want to be the Lord. And we do this, we rebel in a couple of ways. Some of you rebel by being really, really bad. Hey, nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want, when I want, how I want. And you just did the, the worst things you could think of. Nobody's going to tell me how to live. And that's how some of you become your own Lord. And, and others of you become your own Lord by actually conforming, being a really, really good moral person trying to follow the letter of the law, and then saying, God, I did all this, now you owe me. You pay me rent for working on the land. You give me now a good spouse. You give me a good job. You now give me good health. You provide for me in all these ways because I have worked the land. Both of those are making yourself your own Lord. I was reminded of this text this past week. I was at a pastor's conference, and one of the pastors there, he, he slowed down and he read through Philippians 3. Uh, y'all turn to Philippians 3. And, and in Philippians 3, Paul is looking back at his old life in which he was trying to be the landowner. He was trying to put God in his debt said, God, I know you've given me everything. You provided for me all these things. Much of this is completely, you know, because of you. But I'm doing my best and you owe me. Look at verse 4. 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. What Paul's saying is he's just like these religious leaders to whom Jesus is talking. He's just like them. He was like the elder brother we had in Luke 15. He was like the rich young ruler who said he had kept all the law that that was in Luke 19. He was just like the Pharisee that we found next to the tax collector in the temple praying, who said, I'm doing all these things right. Paul was just like them. And it says, according to the law, he was blameless. Not many of us can, can say that. He's saying he was blameless. But he held on to that. And he said, God owes me. I'm living a really good life. God owes me. He was trusting in that to save him. And so we come to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count my Morality, my tithing, my fasting, my giving to the poor, my being a good teacher, my religious heritage. I count all of those things in loss, as loss, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So when you hold out all of your goodness to God, you hold it all out to Him and you say, look God, I'm good, therefore you owe me salvation. You owe me rent. If you say that, you will never find God. That's what Jesus is teaching in this parable. Now, Jesus' story up to this point would have been seen as a very common thing. Landowners rented land to tenants. Tenants wouldn't pay, then certainly they would have sent more servants. But if they refused to pay, this is where the story takes a dramatic turn. Because no landowner would ever send his son. That's just stupid, is what it is. It's absolutely stupid. It's not logical. Do you know of any father who would send their own child after they had sent servants who had been beaten and beaten and beaten and in Matthew's count killed? And then you think, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son. Do you know anybody who would do that? It doesn't make any sense. No, instead you send the law. You, You send the troops. You send the police. These people have, they've got a record of not paying. They've been breaking the law. You can easily send in the troops. But he does it. Instead, he sends in his son, which is foolish. And I just, I just kept thinking about this this week. Well, why in the world would you do that? It's, it's utterly foolish 
unless the landowner isn't after rent. Now, if his goal is to get rent, you send in the troops, you send in the law. But rent is not his goal. He wants something more. What he wants is to restore a relationship that's there. And so he sends in his son. Maybe they'll respect him. Maybe I can restore, I can salvage this relationship. He's not after payment. He's after their hearts. And that's why he sends his own son, even though he knows it's going to be bad. He's after their hearts. And we know how the story goes. They, they kill the son. The religious leaders are going to kill Jesus. And then Jesus says that the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what he's saying here is that, the, that he's the stone and they've rejected him. They're going to kill him. But in doing so, he is going to become the rock. He's going to become the foundation of our salvation. Through his death and his resurrection, God is going to take us off these sinking sands of a righteousness based on morality. And he's going to place us in a righteousness and a salvation based on the grace of Jesus. And if you stand on that, it doesn't matter what happens. You will not be moved. And then Jesus goes to the next story here. And I want us to read this one. Seems to be an unrelated story about paying taxes to Caesar. Um, but it's actually here that Jesus drives his point home. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a Daenerys. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They think they have just nailed Jesus with the perfect question. They... Um, they were actually trying to imitate him. You know, he asked them a question that they couldn't answer without being in trouble. And so they think, ah, that's what we need to do. We're going to ask Jesus a question he can't answer without getting into trouble. And so they, they asked this perfect question about taxes. If Jesus says, no, you're not to pay taxes, then, um, of course, he's probably going to be arrested by the Roman soldiers for uh, trying to lead all the people astray. And then if he says, no, yes, you're supposed to pay taxes, well, then all these religious zealots are going to go crazy. Actually, 40 years later, they will go crazy over the issue of taxes, and it's why Jerusalem was overthrown, because they don't believe at all that they should be giving tribute to Rome. Seems to be the perfect question. 
And Jesus, he asked for a denarius, um, which is a small coin. And on, on one side, it would have had a picture of Caesar. On the other side, it would have had an inscription that read, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And Jesus asked this question. He says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. Then he says, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Now, when he said, and give to God the things that are God's, that's when he is tying it back into the parable. That's when he's really laying the hammer down here, driving the gospel home to them. He's making what they thought was a very small issue about taxes, and he's making it something huge. To understand this, you've got to go back to Genesis 1. When God created man, it said, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Now, so just as this coin had the image of Caesar on it, and he said, this belongs to Caesar because it has his image. And now he's looking at them, and he's saying, all of humanity, all of man, has God's image, was created in the image of God. So give to God the things that are God's. Give to God the things that have his image. And Jesus here, he's exerting his rights as their creator. And he's saying that you religious leaders owe me everything. You're created in my image. I have rights over every aspect of your life because you bear my likeness. You cannot make demands of me. You cannot act like you are the landowners. You were created and everything you have is by sheer grace alone. I don't know if that's ever hit you. I feel like so often we just hear the words grace, hear the words gospel, and you know, Christians just kind of want to go to the next gear and move past that into bigger and better things. We don't ever move past that. Ever move past the gospel. Has that hit you? Is there any area in your life that you're telling God, mine, hey, no, that's mine, and you're not letting, letting him have it? And he's saying, no, it's all mine. Everything you have is his. Because he created you and you bear his image. And because of grace, because you were saved by grace, you were created by grace, there is nothing now that God cannot ask of you. You realize that if you, if you did even a little something, a little works toward your salvation, just a little bit of your own righteousness, then when God asks you to do something, you can negotiate. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, God, but you know, I actually put a little bit of the work into that. Yeah, I'm actually responsible for a little bit of this. And God says, no. You were saved by grace. You were created by grace. You bear my image. I own you. And that means there is nothing that God cannot ask of you. If he asks you to move to Woodlawn, you move to Woodlawn. If he asks you to 
to leave this country and go on the mission field. You leave this country and you go on the mission field. If he asks you to give up your career, so maybe you could spend more time um, with your family or more time volunteering, or because he just sees the amount of pride that's working in your life, you give up your career. If he asks you to let go of your possessions, you let go of your possessions. If he asks you to, to go and forgive certain people, you go and you forgive certain people. There's nothing that he cannot ask you to do. And he's not doing this. He's not asking you to do these things to him because he wants, you, he wants rent. Because he wants you to pay him back. That's not it. He's after your heart. It's not like God needs rent. It doesn't like, like he needs you to give to the poor. It's like, thanks. Whew, I didn't know how I was going to get that one covered. Thanks for filling in for me. He doesn't need that. What he's asking you to do is let go of those things that you're holding on to so you can grab hold of him. It's the relationship that he's after. He's asking you to, uh, to count all of these things as loss that he asks you to give up. You count them as loss that you may gain Christ. He's after your heart. All of us bear his image. All of us saved by grace. Absolutely nothing that he cannot ask of us that we should not willingly let go of in order that we, we may lay hold of him. Pray with me. Lord, forgive us for so often wanting to move on past the gospel. We don't even understand your gospel yet. It hasn't really worked into our lives. Forgive us for thinking we're so much better than others, trying to stand on our own righteousness. Forgive us for making demands of you that we live such a way and that you owe us. Everything we are is by grace. Everything. And you have total creator rights over us. We bear your image and there is nothing that you cannot ask of us. And Lord, we want to give you those things not as a way of paying you back, but just to be with you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.